Awareness, the final frontier. These are the explorations of Jonathan Robinson and Brian Tom O'Connor. Their continuing mission, to discover fresh new paths to the mystery within. To seek out new joys and new methods of awakening. To boldly go into the heart of expanded consciousness. This is Awareness Explorers. Welcome back, Awareness Explorers. Great to have you. We always enjoy your presence. I'm Jonathan Robinson with my co-host, Ryan Tom O'Connor. And we also have a special guest today. It's Arthur Agajanian. And in a moment, I will be giving his bio and we'll be asking him a bunch of questions. I'm really interested in what Arthur has to say because he's a Christian contemplative and we haven't talked much about Christianity or Christian mysticism on Awareness Explorers. So I look forward to seeing the similarities and differences that Christian mysticism might have to non-dual awakening. But before we get into that, let me say hi to Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, Jonathan. I'm so looking forward to talking to Arthur and pushing the envelope of Awareness Explorers. Yes, it's a new exploration for us. And since most people in the world now, I think Christianity and Catholicism are the number one religion of the world, it's something that we really need to explore. And as many of you know, I've uh, spent many years as a Christian, uh, what I would consider a Christian mystic, and I will have some interesting questions for Arthur. So let me tell you a little bit about Arthur. Arthur Agajanian is a Christian contemplative essayist and educator. His work explores visual culture through a spiritual lens. His essays have appeared in a variety of publications, including Ecstasis, Tiferet Journal, St. Austin Review, The Curator, and many others. He holds an MFA from Otis College of Art and Design, and he has a website at imageandfaith.com. Welcome to Awareness Explorers, Arthur. Thank you, Jonathan. It's uh, great to be here with both of you. I'm grateful for our time together. You know, we have almost, I'll say, avoided going into the Christian religion because in a certain way, so many people have been brought up in Christianity and we're to somewhat, to some extent, a lot of people I see were almost like traumatized by it. And then they kind of rebelled against it. But you somehow have found that there's a lot in Christianity and Christian mysticism that can be connected and overlap with non-dual awakening. And I guess my first question is, how did, how have you gotten to that point where they are related to you and you see Christian mysticism as a path of awakening? Thanks for the question, Jonathan. Well, my journey has taught me how much wisdom there is in the Eastern spiritual traditions. I was born as a Christian. I was baptized in the Armenian Apostolic Church. And the Armenian Church is part of the Eastern Orthodox lineage. And I was always spiritually inclined, but I wasn't a heavy churchgoer as I was growing up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. and we were attending Armenian church as well as non-denominational American churches. 
And um, after a while, I outgrew that, and uh, I began to drift towards the Eastern spiritual traditions as I got a little bit older as a young man. And I really began to appreciate how much wisdom there was, how much wisdom there is in those traditions like Buddhism and Vedanta, and how much there is to learn from them, especially the practice of mindfulness and meditation mm-hmm. and the silent attentiveness to presence. And these were not things that were talked about in the churches that I was growing up in. And I came back to the Christian church when I discovered the mystical dimension that all the major traditions share. I believe in the risen Christ, and I know that cycle of resurrection to be present on a micro and a macro cosmic level. And I think of Christ as the universal principle. This expands one's understanding of who Christ might be. And that non-dual philosophy that is so basic to the Eastern spiritual traditions is something that became a little bit more clear for me through contemporary non-dual teachings. And when I discovered the mystical path in Christianity, it was a return home. So coming back to the foundations where I began and, and finding all the richness that was there that I was never educated in as a young person. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, for me, being able to combine non-dualism and the Eastern traditions and Christianity was really helpful because, you know, we're kind of, in America, we live in a pretty Christian culture. And, you know, I hear Christian music. A lot of my friends are Christian. It's nice to not have that separation, like they're doing something totally different than what I'm doing. And so when we can find those parallels, it's actually kind of healing. Yes, absolutely. And that's, I think, one of the benefits, too, for me is that I find this much larger community that I can relate to, although often speaking a very different language. Mm -hmm. But part of my journey has been a translation of the mainstream language of Christianity to the non-dual, understanding the non-dual in scripture, in Christian tradition, and making sense of what is often talked about or the language that things are talked about in the mainstream church, making sense of that using a contemplative lens. So there's work involved in that. Mm-hmm. And, but that's also why I, I appreciate having a relationship with other contemplatives because we don't have to cut through layers of language to understand each other. And we share similar terminology and related concepts that help us to get kind of to the core of the things that are most important to us when we're sharing our journey and supporting one another. Mm -hmm. And before we get into the parallels between Christian mysticism and and non-duality, just for our, our listeners who might not be familiar with it, how, how would you define Christian mysticism and uh, contemplative Christianity? Are they the same? Well, contemplative Christianity, that's, it's, I really see that as a state, a state of being. And the mystical tradition is something that's specific to the history of Christianity. It's 
what you could call the minor tradition as opposed to the major tradition. It's been there from the very beginnings with the desert fathers and mothers and all the way up through uh, to our time, through contemporary times. It goes back to Jesus's teachings. It starts there. And it's about the inner dimension of religious faith and practice. It's the mystical tradition is something that's shared by all the major religions. And uh, it, it's just, it's, but it's simply not discussed widely in mainstream Christian circles. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. It's a spiritual encounter with a sacred mystery through a conscious awareness. So it's very, very much connected to those Eastern traditions that I've studied because the mystical dimension is common to all of the major religions. And it makes it very easy to appreciate what other religious traditions offer because when you tap into that mystical stream, you find a lot of commonality. And you can also shed new light on your own understanding of Christianity through these other traditions and through non-duality in general. I so, if you can give an example yes. of what would be uh, like a Christian mystical aspect for our listeners who might not relate to it that way. Sure. So when we talk about mysticism, this is something that transcends religion. It's a direct apprehension of the divine and where religion can bind people together. It can also create opposition, but um, the mystical heart of religion is something that unites everyone. Mystical awakening is a profound sense of oneness and an all embracing love. That's universal a recognition of the imminent and transcendent aspects of God through exterior and interior worship, Spiritual practice and experience is prioritized over dogma and doctrine. And it's that experiential nature that first drew me to it and which I was um, originally pulled to the Eastern uh, traditions by the, the experiential spiritual life. And with mysticism, we're not talking about something we have to believe because we can test it in our own experience. Christian theological language often places God outside of us and also tends to put an emphasis on Jesus very often over the Trinity, which can cause some distortion. And when you're following the mystical path, you're following Jesus's non-dual teachings rather than worshiping Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I believe that faith can't survive on a meager nourishment provided by the mind alone, by ideas, doctrines, and arguments. Faith needs a nurture that comes from encounters with the divine and experiences of the holy. And the mystical tradition puts us in touch with the holy in a direct way, primarily through silent prayer and a communion with Christ as emanating in all of reality. So again, that, that, experiential aspect is, is really critical. And it's supported by the, the history, the mystical history of people like Julian of Norwich, Meister Eckhart, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, Hildegard of Bingen, Bernard of Clairvaux. And then in the modern period, we have people like Evelyn Underhill, Telhard de Chardin, and Thomas Merton. And um, 
we're able to see threads through all of their writings that really speak to a non-dual awareness and an experiential form of Christianity. And that's what I love. Mm-hmm. Well, that's beautifully summarized. Thanks so much. I feel a sense when you talk about it that my experience of things like, well, my main practice would be, I would just call it awareness practices, is, is the same, just using different language. That direct experience, not the intellectual understanding, and not looking outside of ourselves for, the, for our true nature, for the joy and love and happiness, but looking within and seeing what's here, what's already here, and what's, what's never not been here. Yes, and It sounds exactly. so similar. It sounds identical even, just different language. Yeah, well, like I said, contemporary non-dual teachings really helped clear a lot of the fog for me uh, because theological language in any religion is complex. And oftentimes we can't see the basic lessons because of the language and because of the things that have sort of ossified in the tradition and um, kind of become stagnant for us. And when I discovered non-dual teachings, I was able to bring those back into Christianity uh, through the help of contemporary authors and see that, oh, there it is. It's in the Christian tradition, these non-dual teachings I could go back into the language, back into the theology, and it became not just more meaningful, but just so much richer. And I delight in finding these parallels, these mystical parallels from one religious tradition to another and discovering the mystical attributes of Christianity through a non-dual lens. So contemporary non-dual teachings, for me, that's their great virtue is their clarity. But for me, returning home to Christianity provided the rich and fertile ground to continually go deeper. Mm-hmm. You know, in my experience, uh, about 20 years ago, I had a book called Bridges to Heaven. And it became uh, sold a lot. And uh, churches would, Christian churches would invite me to speak about the book. And uh, it was also had interviews with people like the Dalai Lama and Deepak Chopra. So New Age churches would invite me to speak about the book as well. And on some Sundays, I would speak to a Christian church in the morning and then a New Age church in the afternoon. I'd use totally different language, but I was talking about the same thing. And these two groups would never understand each other. But if I just change a few terms, everybody was happy. (laughs) Yeah, struck me as pretty funny. But, you know, there were some, I tend to look at things in terms of what methods are different approaches using. You know, the methods of Buddhism are tend to be pretty different than the methods most Christians use. Like, for example, when I was actively being a Christian, we would use things like prayer or uh, praising God as a way of feeling connected and one with, say, Holy Spirit. Whereas there's no real method in in Buddhism that's like praising God, because one, they don't talk about God, and two, they don't talk about praise. So I found it interesting that 
the methods were different, although the end goal seemed to be similar. I'm wondering uh, what methods, if any, you found similar between non-dual and, Christ and mystical Christianity? Well, when we open our awareness of God, who is always present in us through practices that allow us to dwell in silence, because that's, as uh, St. John of the Cross said, the, the language of God is the language of silence. Mm -hmm. So this idea of dwelling in the silence is really about becoming one with Christ through attentiveness and through opening oneself up and allowing God to fill us, mm -hmm. letting our ego go. Uh, in the language of um, contemporary non-dualism, you're letting your ego go and you're allowing God to fill you up. So you're dropping the little me and you're connecting with your true self. And experiencing heightened levels of consciousness can facilitate a sense of God's presence. So when we're dwelling in silence, when we're in prayer or meditation, we are able to drop the false self away and to experience through meditation, contemplation, silence, solitude, uh, stillness. We're facilitating an encounter with God through these methods. And the prayer of the mystical lineage involves silence. We open our minds and our hearts to divine love. And we have specific practices like centering prayer, Christian meditation, uh, Lexio Divina. With images, you can use something called Visio Divina, where you're meditating on an image. And it's all about opening yourself up and letting the noise drop away and letting God enter. But there's this tradition behind it. And there are images that go with that. And there are texts that we can um, use to help us understand our experience. Because the experience is like what we talk about in contemporary non-duality, being present, being open, letting the ego melt away. But when we use uh, theology to help us understand our experience, that's where I find all of the richness. That's where I find all of the um, sort of where embodiment really comes into play. And that extends to aesthetics, which is something that I explore in my writing. Mm -hmm. Now, Arthur, you and I uh, had some exchanges before this. We, we, we spoke and we, we had a lot of email uh, back and forths. And we sort of put a, put a list together of non-dual principles. And you were looking at the parallels between these principles of non-duality and Christian mysticism. So I, I thought it might be fun to explore some of those. Yeah, um, it is a lot of fun. I, I enjoy doing that. So I appreciate the, the opportunity. So how should we go about it? Should we like pick a few or did you have some that stood out for you that you'd like to start with? Um, I can mention the, um, the principles that you gave me. And uh, I have some quotes here that I can actually uh, read so that listeners will have the actual language uh, oh. that comes from... Uh, in some cases, they're Gnostic texts, so esoteric writings from the early days of Christianity, and in other cases, it's scripture. I can do it that way, or you can. That sounds really. That sounds really good, actually. Okay. 
Okay, should I go ahead oh. and start? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so um, one of the principles you sent me was dissolving all divisions between inside and outside, between self and other. So the unifying, right, of, of in the interior world and the exterior world. And uh, in Christian terms, that's about reconciliation and restoration. That's unconditional love. And I think of the Trinity. It's the structure of being that leads to unconditional love and the fullness of being. Uh, the Trinity is, is a, a non-dual idea, three in one, one in three. And um, as I kind of alluded to earlier, the, the mainstream church tends to play down the Trinity in favor of the person of Jesus. And um, I think that's partly one of the results of that is that there's confusion and lack of understanding of the Trinity, but also the, uh, the tendency for us to think dualistically makes grasping uh, the depth of the Trinity difficult. So that was one. And then uh, in um, quoting here from the book of John, chapter 17, verses 20 to 21, where Jesus prays for all believers we read, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You also sent me imagining that it is a universe that is looking out through our eyes. And that connects to one of my favorite quotes, which you had also um, thought of from Meister Eckhart, the medieval mystic, uh, where he says, the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one eye, one seeing, one knowing, one love. That's a great one. Yeah. That is so um, wonderful. I love that quote. I, I was glad that you picked that so I wouldn't forget it because it's, it's always worth mentioning when you're talking about that uh, unifying principle between uh, us and, and the larger reality that, that we're a part of. Um, then there was, uh, you sent uh, another principle was all is made of awareness. And so when we think about awareness being all pervasive, we can also think of pure divinity as being the heart of all things and that creation must occur in God. So creation is God or divinity. And that awareness also extends beyond me. And the divine then is seamlessly included without form. And there's that joining of, of, of everything within God. And the Gnostics considered the principal element of salvation to be direct knowledge of the supreme divinity in the form of mystical or esoteric insight. And therefore, many Gnostic texts deal not in concepts of sin and repentance, but with illusion and enlightenment. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, when I uh, explored Christianity, I found that I was able to experience uh, what could be called divine love or uh, Holy Spirit. And when I got into Eastern stuff, one of the techniques I used to meditate is I made a list of all the people I've ever loved or felt close to. And to this day, often when I meditate, I will just spend a minute or two with each person, just thinking about them and what I love about them. And before I know it, I'm bathed in love. And 
uh, you mentioned how images can be helpful. I actually have images of all these people on my smartphone. So I have an image of, say, my mother, and I will look at her and think of all the loving moments I had. And then there'll be my dog and I'll think of loving moments with her. And, and it's very powerful to spend uh, half an hour, an hour, just totally bathed in love. And of course, Jesus said so much about love as being key. And I'm wondering if you, in your readings of Master Eckhart, Thomas Burton, the, these people, were were they tuning into divine love or what were they doing that allowed them to feel so connected to God? Well, I think it was... If you're thinking about monastics, people whose lives were encompassed by the church, they were deeply engaged in a tradition and they lived in a way, we can't forget that's very different from us in our contemporary yeah. context. And um, I often tell myself and remind others too that we have it really tough because we don't have the luxury of being able to isolate ourselves um, and, and stay in quiet, non-distracted contexts where we can really fully engage with our true nature away from the demands of, of everyday life. So these people led a rarefied existence in a way, and this allowed them to have insights that we're also capable of if we nurture that in our own lives, if we make space for it. And I think ritual and commitment is extremely important. And, and there are things that are difficult for us because we're constantly being dragged in different directions. And are, are, there's always such a large demand on our time. But I've always felt it's very important to spend time alone and uh, to spend time alone with God. And, um, you know, there's people will go on retreats, people will go out into nature. Many people will create places in their homes that become sacred spaces where they can go and, and meditate and pray. And uh, it's, it's something that you have to consciously do. And when you do, and you're opening yourself up to God's presence, God is always there. God doesn't go anywhere. You, you can't get away from, from what God is. So it's simply waking up to that. It's not a matter of going out and, and searching for God. It's a matter of recognizing what your true nature is. And you have to be ready to do that. You have to be ready to open to, the, uh, to, to God. And that requires a certain spiritual maturity. That's a developmental thing. I did want to also, though, mention, Jonathan, since you were talking about feeling love, it's interesting because when I was meditating in the Eastern mode, I was very isolated and I was mainly concerned with getting to understand the nature of reality. How were my thoughts working? How was I perceiving the world around me? What was going on? with me. And I didn't have much need for other people. But then when I came back to Christianity, there was so much talk about love, 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 love. You know, Jesus was all about love. I was, I realized that I had to love other people too. I had to bring people into the, the equation. And 
then gradually from there, I started to move to an understanding of the importance of relationship and that we need to be, we're not just trying to be when we're meditating, for example, we're not trying to just be connected to our, our true nature and to things outside of ourselves, but also to other people. It's that whole Christ in the other idea yeah. that yeah. the other person uh, is me and um, I, can, I can love that other person in the way that I love myself and, and in the way that I love God. It's all interconnected. You know, Brian and I often talk about two wings, yin yang, where in Eastern traditions, there is more of a focus on, you know, finding uh, inner peace on your own, you know, isolated, the Himalayan cave or whatever. And one of the things I did like about Christianity is it's very much based on love and relationship. And uh, to speak to uh, something else you said, I once saw a bumper sticker that said, uh, if you don't feel close to God, guess who moved? And um, it's always a good reminder that God or love is in our relationship with other life, whether it be nature, people, or, or God. Yeah, it's, it's all interconnected. And the divisions are human-made divisions. So we compartmentalize mm-hmm. so that we have a sense of control. But uh, that waking up and realizing our true nature is always about opening those compartments. Want to do a couple more? I, I love those uh, those comparisons. I thought maybe we could do maybe the one about wordlessness or maybe unconditional allowing. Sure. So uh, yeah, wordlessness. So noticing what arises in awareness that can be known without words running through our heads. I made reference to this before. Saint John of the Cross said, "God's first language is silence." And Thomas Keating, the uh, Trappist monk who was one of the people who created uh, centering prayer said in response to that, or to continue from that, what St. John of the cross had said, he wrote, everything else is a poor translation. In order to understand this language, we must learn to be silent and to rest in God. And uh, unconditional allowing of everything to be as it is, including ourselves and our emotions, as well as others in the world. Uh, The Bible says about giving unconditionally in 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 13, verses four to seven, I'll read, love is patient, love is kind. I'm sure you've heard this. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So that's an unconditional allowing, accepting things for what they are and appreciating their inherent value. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Couldn't put it better. But isn't it great language? I mean, when, when you, the language, when the language of Christianity is seen for its depths, it really opens up a rich treasure of, of understanding and experience for us. And um, so that, that's why I really, I, I have fun with deconstructing and, and translating a lot of this in terms of my own experience and understanding and 
through the writings of the mystics uh, and the teachings of contemplative Christians today, the misunderstandings that so many people have or Christians have about what some of the basic principles of Christianity are. I like taking those apart and going deeper because I find that there can be a lot of resistance to how they sound on the surface or how they've been taught some of these principles. But once you start to go deep and really explore what they mean, in some cases that means understanding the the way some words and phrases were translated from one language to another, things all of a sudden start to open up. I mean, the whole thing about sin, that the word sin comes from a word that means to miss the mark. When you think about sin as not meeting your full potential as opposed to something about you that's ugly, then you can delve into a lot of material in Christianity that you might've felt excluded you. Hmm. Yes. And also there was, isn't there another way of looking at the word repent uh, to turn around? Yes. Uh, Yes, absolutely. And I always thought of that. I mean, because turning around to me is, is one of the major non-dual concepts. We turn from, what we see as the content of our experience to what is experiencing. And then, you know, back to the, to the Meister Eckhart quote, we see, we, we identify with what, not with what we look at, but with what is looking. And we see that that is by its very nature, loving unconditionally, because like a clear mirror, it allows everything. Yes. Yes, it's, it's the idea of conversion, repentance. These are, these are words that are, for a lot of people, are loaded with guilt uh, and shame and blaming. But they're actually words that, in their original sense, and in terms of Jesus' teachings, refer to ways of orienting ourselves to God and understanding what our true nature is. And so... I really love going deep into those things and, and uncovering the different contexts in which they appear and, um, and, and understanding them in, in new ways. And it, it's also interesting to see how they've been distorted through specific historical circumstances. I mean, for example, I don't know how related this is, but I can't help bringing up when I think about distortion throughout history, the idea that so many mainstream Christians of a certain ilk have about the Bible as something that should be read literally, uh, that notion is a relatively modern one because through much of uh, the history of the Bible, uh, interpretation was not just accepted, it was encouraged. Interpretation through various types of Christianity, through various types of Christian communities, and to fit various circumstances historically and culturally. So interpretation is part of what the Bible is. It's how scripture works. And it's also what makes the Bible a living document and relevant to everything that we're doing today. We have to interpret, we have to use imagination, not in the daydreaming sense, but in the sense of a deep contemplative understanding and transforming within our minds. 
and then applying to our lived experience. And that's, for me, that's where aesthetics comes in. That's where visual language comes in. It's understanding uh, the, the deeper dimensions of, of scripture and of spiritual teachings of all kinds through the forms that they take and the, the beautiful variety of visual uh, or material culture. In Hinduism, for example, you have the sacred as represented by countless deities that are all different aspects of the one unit of consciousness. I think that's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. I know uh, I was brought up Jewish and in the Jewish tradition, they you know, have all these Talmudic scholars that can take like two sentences and spend a year studying what the interpretation of that is. I, I might be exaggerating a little bit, but, but not by much. Um, and in a way, you know, I got interested in that. And I think that has led to my wanting to explore spiritual concepts like we do on Awareness Explorers. And, you know, um, another thing which I wanted to bring up to you, Arthur, is um, when, you know, I got into Eastern traditions uh, early, and then I had a guru and I visited a lot of gurus. I got to spend time with a lot of gurus. I noticed that if I was in their presence, there would be what I would call transmission, meaning I would get very high from the energy that they seemed to project. So when I went, when I be, became a Christian, who I was actually told to become a Christian by one of the gurus, the one that I spent the most time with, as a task to help open my heart. And I found it very easy to open up to what could be called the Holy Spirit transmission. It was not a new concept to me, and, and it was very easy. I'm wondering if you see a parallel in terms of, of Holy Spirit being a transmission and what they say in some Eastern traditions about that. I think that's, that, that's really interesting that, that he sent you to Christianity uh, for the love. <laughs> that's, mm -hmm. that's great. It's, it just goes to show that all of the basic principles exist in, in all, of the, all of the different faiths, but I think there's different emphases and there's different inflections. And yeah. that goes back to what I was saying about the primacy of love in Christianity. And I certainly needed that. Um, I think as far as the understanding of the spirit the spirit is something that's constantly in movement. The spirit is change or flux or flow. And it's what drives everything. It's the energy that drives everything. And again, that's to talk about the Holy Spirit is a specific kind of Christian concept and terminology but it's like when you hear in popular culture, people say the universe is wanting this or that or calling mm -hmm. you for this or that. I see that as a spirit. Uh, the spirit is a, a dynamic energy that, that moves through and makes things happen. And it's, it's part, of the, part of the Trinity. God, the Father as God in all things, manifesting in created reality 
the spirit as that thing that connects us to God and moves through us from us to God and Jesus as the personification of God's relationship to us as humans, God taking that human form to experience the suffering, ultimately the life and the suffering of humankind and to, to join with us. That was an act of love to reach out to us. And we reach out to God through Jesus. Jesus is sort of the, the vehicle by which we understand God on in, in the personal sense. And people will also talk about Mary, for example, as not simply the mother of Jesus, but as the feminine quality of God. Mm. Uh, so again, if you open up your understanding of Christian theology by looking at what other faiths have in common on the mystical plane with Christianity, look at the forms that are produced uh, in worship and in the uh, aesthetics and the practices of other faiths, it really helps shed new light on Christianity and it makes it most importantly, applicable. So it contains everything. It's just a matter of, for a lot of people, now, fortunately, I didn't have this problem, but for a lot of people, it's getting beyond the wounds that they experienced in the church growing up, as you alluded to at the beginning of our conversation. Brian's and, nodding his head uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. very, very forcefully. Yes. Trauma. <laughs> yeah. And I was, I was fortunate because, um, Brian, I think I related to you in an earlier conversation that, you know, in the Armenian church, the Armenian church is a binding force uh, for the, the diaspora. So Armenians in communities all over the world who were scattered uh, because of, of what happened to the Armenian nation with the genocide in 1915, the church has always been a point of cultural and social and uh, and also through language, unity for the Armenian community. So my point here is that the church was supportive of the culture as opposed to being an oppressive force because the Armenians have always been a minority in other people's lands. So it's a very different kind of a church uh, individual relationship than, for example, the Catholic church, which has been you know, a massive and powerful institution worldwide. And so I don't have any of those scars fortunately. Um, and that's because I've always had a spiritual inclination. Uh, it was easy for me to come back to Christianity when I recognized the non-dual lineage within it. And that to understand it in all its depths, you really need to have non-dual lenses. But I can certainly understand that people who have had negative experiences with the church they have a huge wall to climb to, to get there to where they can see Christianity in a new way. Uh, it re really requires trust. But what I would recommend is, is simply looking at these parallels. I mean, the, the type of things that we're talking about here today, uh, that's why I was really excited to share these connections uh, between non-dual concepts and mystical Christian concepts so that listeners would, would, hear something familiar in, in terms of 
what they're familiar with in terms of non-duality, hearing how that can also, that also is in the Christian tradition. And, and then you can go, oh, okay, wait a minute. So maybe that's worth exploring further. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in Awareness Explorers, we often talk about practical methods for people to get into higher states of consciousness. I know a big part of of your work and the work of mystical Christians is the centering prayer. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that and how people might do it or explore it. Sure, I'd be glad to. So centering prayer goes back to the 1970s. That's a relatively modern phenomenon. After Vatican II, Three Trappist monks at St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts. Father is William Menninger, Basil Pennington, and Thomas Keating began to look at ancient sources with the intention of developing a simple method of silent prayer for contemporary people, as opposed to just monks and those who lived in the church. And the prayer that they developed came to be known as centering prayer. Uh, This was in reference to Thomas Merton's description of contemplative prayer as prayer that's centered entirely on the presence of God. So centering on God is that centering prayer. And the monks who developed centering prayer then began to offer workshops and retreats to both clergy and lay people. And then as interest began to spread, and there was an important retreat in 1983 on Centering Prayer, the organization Contemplative Outreach was formed, and uh, that still exists today as a uh, network for Centering Prayer practitioners. And it helps to keep the contemplative dimension of Christianity alive and well. Did you want me to share the steps of centering prayer? Yeah, I think that would be great. Okay. I can't really demonstrate it because uh, centering prayer in this context, because centering prayer uh, is recommended as being done for 20 minutes, twice a day, once in the morning, once in the late afternoon. And it's very simple. It consists of four steps. And by the way, I transferred over the Buddhist meditation I'd been doing for decades to centering prayer. It was a very easy shift for me. It is very much about the principle of becoming silent and becoming aware of yourself in relation to the larger movement of the spirit. So the first step in centering prayer is to choose a sacred word. And this sacred word is a symbol of your intention to consent to God's presence and action within. So the important thing to keep in mind about centering prayer is it's about intentionality. So if you have a bad prayer session, which is to say that your mind is constantly running away and you're getting caught up in your emotions or you're distracted, you return to this sacred word. So the sacred word could be something like, it should be simple, keep it to one syllable, a word like love or Abba, another name for God, like father, or I use the word, I'm currently using the word rest. I've used uh, 
other words in the past. And you return to this word when you feel your mind is too active. So you're consenting to God's presence. When you sit down, your intention is to be with God. So intentionality is critical. Then you're sitting comfortably and you can do this in a chair or on a cushion. I use a cushion and your eyes are closed. You settle briefly and then you silently introduce the sacred word as a symbol of your consent to God's present and active interconnection with, with you. Then as you're sitting, when engaged with your thoughts, recognizing that you return ever so gently to the sacred word, you use the sacred word to bring you back. And at the end of the prayer period, after 20 minutes has passed, it's recommended to remain in silence with eyes closed for a couple of extra minutes to come back slowly. Also using a chime to set the time at the beginning and the end of the period. And what I, what I love about centering prayer is, I guess you could say it's very forgiving. When I was doing a Buddhist prayer, it was the, when, when I would get the monkey mind, I'd feel bad about it. And you know how it is. You rate your meditation, uh, good or bad. And it could become a struggle, a uh, struggle of self-will. But when you keep in mind that with centering prayer, it's about your intention. You're, you're giving the time and the space. You're giving yourself over to God. Then there's really no way you can do it wrong. And uh, it's also been said, if you, uh, Thomas Keating actually said, uh, one of the people who develop centering prayer if your mind wanders away in that 20 minutes for a thousand, uh, wanders away a thousand times, that's just a thousand opportunities to come back to God. So that's something to be grateful for. That is a beautiful practice. And, uh, and again, there's so many parallels with other practices. I mean, I love using the words love and rest, but uh, it's similar to um, self-inquiry where you use the word I or I am. Yeah, well, you can, you yeah. can, I mean, the, the word is, is simply something that is sacred to you and which again, symbolizes your intention. Right. So that can be any word that you're comfortable with. And uh, again, moving from a practice that you have in another tradition into centering prayer is a very uh, simple thing to do. There's another kind of centering prayer that was promoted by a man named John Main, where you're using a, a mantra. So you're coming back continuously to that sacred word. Um, but this is the kind that I use, the one that was developed by uh, the three Trappist monks I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been very insightful and, and great, Arthur. I'm wondering if there's any final concepts or words that you have for our listeners and perhaps exploring the parallels or uh, anything else you might want to say? Well, um, there's a lot of information that might be helpful to people who are curious on my website, imageandfaith.com. I update that regularly and it's an archive for all my writings. 
and a place for spiritual nourishment. So I hope your listeners will check it out and return to it on an ongoing basis. My, my writings also, I think, um, are helpful in this whole translation process in grounding these principles in images so that they sit with us in a way that's different and in a way that might go deeper than just reading something or hearing something uh, in terms of a, the meaning or the, or the applicability of a spiritual principle. So uh, that's, and that's, for me, writing is also um, a learning process. It's an extension of my spiritual practice, and it's a way that I learn more about the sacred dimension of, of reality. And I think that any kind of vocation provides an opportunity for that, to find the sacred in whatever it is that you're doing and to recognize its value is um, extremely important. But then to explore these other faiths and to recognize their commonalities. Brian mentioned, um, I guess it was, it was like a diagram. Remember you're telling me about the vertical uh, columns and the horizontal right. layers of, uh, in terms of the relationship of the different uh, religious traditions. And I thought that was a great way of thinking about it, that the mystical tradition is a, a horizontal layer um, that connects all of the, the major religions. Um, another horizontal layer is is the law, another horizontal layer, rituals and practices. Um, and then that the verticals are the, uh, the, the specific historical cultural um, forms that these religions take that, that often make them look very different from each other. Right. And also, um, we didn't get a, a chance to talk about it that much, but I think that your writings on, on works of art, um, are really wonderful, and I would recommend you. anyone who is uh, interested in the arts, or or in spirituality, or in or in awakening, or any kind of growth, to 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 um, read these articles on particular works of art, where Arthur uh, really delves into it and interprets them. And they're all on your website, which again is imageandfaith.com. And while we're talking about websites and such, uh, please, if you like this stuff, go to patreon.com slash awareness explorers and you get a bunch of free stuff for supporting us. And thank you to our Patreon supporters because you keep this alive. We like your emails. We like your suggestions. And we like your words of praise also. (laughs) Anyways, Arthur, it's been a great pleasure to explore this with you. And and it's helped me to feel my uh, connection between Christianity and some of these non-dual traditions and good reminders for all of us that everything is always interconnected. Everything is one, right? Right. Absolutely. Thank you, Jonathan and Brian. I really enjoyed it. Till next time, folks. Stay awake, stay aware, stay loving, and keep exploring. Keep exploring. Thank you for listening to Awareness Explorers. To learn more, you can check out our website at awarenessexplorers.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you would post a review. 
And please share our link on Facebook and with family and friends. Because knowing yourself as awareness is the greatest gift you can give yourself or someone you love.